The question I want to put before us this morning is, what is Christmas really about? And we can just give the standard Sunday school answer. Jesus. Right? If you have kids, you know what I mean, right? If you're in class and you get asked what's the answer, they just say Jesus. And nine times out of ten, they're right. All right? We're, uh, we're not going there this morning. It's not simply Jesus, even though it is about Jesus. I want to put before you this morning that without Christmas, which Christmas is the celebration of the coming of the Messiah, the God-man becoming flesh. Without Christmas, the Bible doesn't make sense at all. Our system of faith is absolutely futile and worthless. This isn't just a holiday where we have pretty trees and drink good-tasting lattes, if you're into that, all right? There's a lot more to it than that. Without the coming of the Messiah, this is foolishness. So I want to put before you this morning that Christmas is actually about God. It's about God and it's about worshiping God. It's about coming to grips with who we are as fallen humanity and who God is as infinitely supreme. And we should be humbled at Christmas. We should be broken at Christmas because Christmas drives us to worship the God who is totally unlike us. The God who is totally separate from us. And if we, if we miss that at Christmas, what a waste. Like we've just gone through the Hallmark holiday and we've missed the treasure of God in Christmas. And so this morning is going to be kind of a strange sermon and I realize that. And I have really one simple goal. So sometimes people think, well, when we go to church, we should come away with, with you know, a motivational speech on how our lives should be better. Well, that's going to not be this morning, okay? But this morning, I, I have one simple goal, is that you would come away in awe of God. That you would just come away with this, like, mind-blown, like you just tiptoed up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, and you look down. And you just kind of go, Whoa and you kind of, your knees get a little shaky, and you kind of tiptoe back to the edge, right? Because you want to see it again, but you're just a little queasy inside because you realize what would happen if you fall over that edge. We're this morning going to tiptoe into the greatness of God, and I, I just hope we finish our time together going, wow, God is magnificent. God is worthy. And we should live lives in accordance to how great and awesome he is. So that's where we're going this morning. So I'm, I'm telling you where we're going so that as we kind of journey down this road together this morning, you'll, hopefully that will build in your soul of like, wow, this God is unbelievably awesome. And Christmas screams the awesome grandeur of God. So this morning, we're going to do what I call a biblical theology of Christmas. All right? That's not to scare you away. All right? We're going to actually go through the entirety of Scripture this morning in a 30,000-foot flyover, because obviously to go through the entire Bible would take us years. So we're just going to skip through some high points of Scripture. And I think it's so crucial because so often the Bible is misunderstood, misapplied, and mistaught because we don't understand the whole story. Can you imagine dropping into a 1,500-page novel, reading two pages, and thinking you know the story? I mean, isn't that what kids do? They don't read the book. They try to skim it before the test, and they wonder why they fail. I'm sure none of you ever did that. Right? 
But it's kind of that, I'm just going to, yeah, okay, it's about, okay, um, well, that's a long book. Let's go to a shorter one. And we just kind of hit the high points, and we think we have a grasp of the story of God. And, And we think we actually understand the story of God when we really have never worked through how this book all fits together. You see, if we don't understand the one grand story of the Bible, none of it makes sense. If you, if you lose sight of this one thread that's woven throughout the entire scriptures as a, as a massive, ornate tapestry, this one thread that knits it all together, it means nothing. You're going to come away a moralist with a lot of stories of people to be like or not be like. You're going to read things and go, that's just really weird. Next. And you're not even going to understand how it fits in the story of God and what God is doing with humanity. And the reason we need to go through that is because when we get to this thing called Christmas, the coming of the Messiah, the incarnate God, it's kind of like one of the climactic moments of all scripture, of all redemptive history. And we need to kind of build steam together to understand, wow, do you get what's happening at Christmas? And we're not talking about December 25th, okay? I know that that's not when Jesus was born, all right? We're not talking about Christmas trees. We're talking about the coming of the Messiah and why it's so central. So this morning, our 30,000 foot flyover, if you will, is going to reveal the story of God in scripture. And I think that 30,000 foot flyover is important. If you fly much, you either hate window seats or you love window seats. All right. If you hate them, it's for two reasons. One, you're scared of heights or two, you like aisle access to get to the bathroom. Okay, so those are the two reasons. But I like windows because I like knowing where I'm going and I like seeing what's underneath me, right? I love taking off from Sacramento and they turn left going uh, east and within 20 minutes you're over Lake Tahoe. And I love looking down. I mean, it's just like, whoa, this is so, I mean, I've seen this like hundreds of times from the shore, but to see it from the, the edge of the airplane, just amazing, right? Or, or if I'm ever flying over places I'm not familiar with, I love trying to figure out where I'm at, right? It's like, oh, I think that's the Grand Canyon. Or, oh, I'm over this set of mountains that I've never seen before in person. Isn't that cool, right? Or one time I actually flew over the North Pole. That was kind of cool. Just to look over and it was like white forever. That was like, oh, you're cool, Uh, right? So I love windows because of what I get to see. This morning when you get a window seat as we fly through the scriptures and hopefully come to a better understanding of the grand story of God. So let's pray and ask God to do that as we dive into his word. Father, we come to you this morning, a people who are drawn to you this morning. We're here because in some measure we're drawn to you. We want to know you. We want to delight in you. And Father, this is a unique season where we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. And so as followers of Jesus, this has a unique impact on our lives this morning. This time of year should push us to you. Father, forgive us truly for being caught up in the many other things that distract us that are lesser than you. And would you help us this morning to just soak, if you will, in the, in the richness of God revealed in the scriptures, the glory of God revealed in the scriptures, and that we'd come away just with an increased awe of you, an increased awareness of your plan to redeem, reconcile, and restore sinners such as we all are. And in Christ's name, amen. 
So this morning, the grand story of God, Genesis to Revelation, truly we'll start in Genesis, we'll finish in Revelation. I hope you have a copy of God's word this morning. I'd love for you to follow along with me. We are Elk Grove Bible Church because we believe that this is where we go, right, for all of life and godliness. I want you to be seeing God's word this morning. So if you ever did, if you grew up in church, you know this thing called sword drills, right? We're not gonna quite go there, but just be turning in your Bible, okay? And follow along in the word of God because I want us to see what God has for us this morning. The grand story of God begins in the Garden of Eden. It begins with God creating a people to dwell with them. He made them because he wanted them to worship him. All right, there's people today that say God made humanity because he was lonely. God made you because he was lonely without you. He was kind of this helpless, pathetic deity who was kind of bored in eternity past. And he wanted some people to be friends with. It's not the message of scripture. He is a infinitely uh, glorious God, perfectly satisfied within himself. He made humanity out of the, the love that he possesses in himself that we would know him and worship him forever. It's why he made us. In Genesis 3, 1 and 2, we see the creation act. In Genesis 3, we see God dwelling with his people in the garden. We see him walking and talking with his humanity. The God who made all things wants to dwell with this perfect creation. Remember what he said when he finished creation? It is good. Without flaw, without problems. Now, you and I both know that's not the world we live in today, is it? I mean, we live in God's good created world, but it is full of problems. It's full of the effects of sin all around us. And so God makes this good plan. He's dwelling with his people and then sin messes everything up. God can no longer dwell with his people because he is the perfection of all things and imperfect, unrighteous cannot dwell with him at any measure. And so this good plan is messed up, marred by sinful humanity. And then really we continue to choose our sin, don't we? I mean, some of you have thought maybe, man, what was Adam thinking? What was Eve thinking? I would have never done that. Yeah, you would. You do it every day. And so do I right? Good plan, we go the other direction. Just like Adam and Eve, God's a good plan, they went the other direction. And really what's interesting is after Genesis 3, the rest of the story, every story, every book, every everything found in here is getting us back to God dwelling with his people. That's the grand story of the Bible. It's not a bunch of random stories. It's one grand story of us going from not dwelling with God to dwelling with God. And that's what we want to see this morning is that because of sin, God can't dwell with his people. We call that the sin problem. And the rest of scripture is God making it possible to once again dwell with his people. I hope that after this morning, you actually read your Bible with that lens. That when you read the scriptures, you're thinking, whoa, Here's part of God's grand story of how he's going to dwell with his people again. Here's how, here's, how it, here's how this story fits in the context of God's grand plan to dwell with his people once again. So we get to Genesis 3, the Garden of Eden, but we see in Genesis 3.15 that what I call the seed promise. The seed promise. And these things might be on the screen behind me. Hopefully they are. Look at Genesis 3.15. This is the curse of God on Satan, when right after the fall of humanity into sin, I will put enmity, hostility, between you, the serpent Satan, and the woman, Eve. 
and between your offspring, that's the word for seed. The word seed was the idea of offspring in the Old Testament. And actually the word seed can be traced throughout the entire Old Testament and almost all the covenants to see God's fulfilling Genesis 3.15. Between your seed, your offspring, and her offspring, Satan, your offspring, will crush or bruise the heel of the woman's offspring. And then he says to the woman, your offspring will crush the head of Satan's offspring, or of you shall bruise his head and you shall bruise his heel. Here he's saying, Satan, you're gonna, you're gonna bruise the heel, crush the heel, but the woman's offspring is gonna crush your head. Now, heel wound, head wound. All right, let's go with, let's go with heel wound, all right? Um, that's better from our perspective. Here he's saying, Satan, you're gonna, you're gonna be in a nuisance that's gonna hurt the heel, but the one coming from the woman gonna crush your head. Now this is really important because Eve got it. She understood what God was saying. You know how? Cain came along and she said, I'm gonna name him Cain for I have received a son with help from the Lord. She thought right away, God did Genesis 3.15. Little did she know it would come actually in the form of Jesus thousands of years later, right? But she knew it and actually Satan knew it too because he gets the first man to kill the brother to say, ha ha, I won. I mean, the story just begins to unfold right before our eyes. And this seed promise is that a savior would be born. Theologians call this the proto-evangelium, which in Latin, that's Latin, and the English translation is the first gospel. That's Genesis 3.15. The first promise of the gospel. There's gonna be one who comes and crushes Satan. I mean, that's, that's where the story begins, folks. Sin hits, Genesis 3.15, there's the promise of the gospel, and the rest of the story falls underneath the promise of the gospel. God going to make it possible to once again dwell with his people. So turn over in your Bible a couple pages. We go, this probably, we don't know, but probably skips 1,500 years or more, okay? Just to give you an idea of what's happening in global history. That's a long time, okay? 1,500 years, now we're at Noah and the flood. Genesis 3, or Genesis 6, verse 18. We know the world is evil. We know that man is running hardcore from God in every direction, right? They're doing what's right in their own eyes. There's no one good in the world save one man. We think our world's bad, folks. We're not that bad off, okay? Genesis 6 is way worse. Noah, here we see God rescues his people to dwell with them. Genesis 6, verse 18. But, this is God, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons and sons' wives with you. Here we see covenant language again. I'm gonna do something to save you. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna destroy you because of your sin. Wasn't that the, the curse of sin, Genesis 3? There's gonna be a curse of death because of sin. He said, I'm not gonna destroy you. I'm gonna save you. I'm gonna covenant with you. Why? because I'm gonna be your God and I'm gonna dwell with you and you're gonna know me. So he says, Noah, even though you live in a world that's running from me, I'm committed to rescuing and restoring and dwelling with my people. So I'm gonna do that to you. And, and Noah and the ark is one of the first types we see of the Messiah, of Jesus. The ark saves Noah and his family from the flood. Jesus saves us from eternal damnation. So the ark typifies what's coming thousands of years later in the cross. All right, so Noah is an example of God wanting to dwell with his people. 
All right. Now we're going to skip probably another thousand to 2000 years. Okay. Go to Genesis 12, go to Genesis 12. Here we have the story of Abraham being introduced. I'm giving you a timeline because if you're like me, I read my Bible and I go from Genesis 11 to 12 and I think no time has passed. But actually a lot of time has passed, okay? And sometimes it's good for us to get our, our minds around that, that we're dealing with, with massive sections of global history. And God's not silent. God's working in all of it. Remember that he is the, weaving that tapestry together with one single thread. He's never removed himself from history. He's always directly involved with what's going on in this planet with these people because he loves us. So we get to Abraham, and here we have the story of God calling a man who does not love him. We know that from Joshua 24, where in Joshua 24, in verse two, he says, I called out of Canaan idol worshipers who did not fear me. They were, we were worshiping idols and God calls out Abraham. He said, I'm gonna make of you a great nation. Why? Because I place my love upon you. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you the father of a great nation. Look at Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will dishonor and and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Remember Genesis three, that was the promise of a seed, of an offspring. And here he says, I'm gonna make of you a great nation promise comes back. That seed promise goes from individual to now corporate. And he says, there was a a promise of a son. Now I'm going to give you the nation through which that child will come. And ultimately, how were all the families of the earth blessed in Abraham? His name is Jesus. That's the ultimate blessing of the seed of Abraham. It was that in you, all people will be blessed because from you will come one ultimately whose name is Jesus, who will save people from their sins. If you, if you still are wondering, ah, I don't know if I see it, try Genesis 17, 17, or 17, 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring, your seed. There's that word again. After you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring forever. What does God desire? To be God to you to be with you, what I created in the garden, to dwell with humanity, that's what I'm going after. I wanna be your God, I want you to be my people, I want to dwell with you. And this is exactly what he says to Abraham, it's what he started in Genesis 3.15, I want to be God to you. And so you see this promise of seed and covenant and blessing growing, right? In Genesis 3.15, it's like a sapling. It's like you just have this little itty bitty seed in the ground. And then by Genesis 12 and 17, it's, it's a little tiny tree. It started to grow. And you go through the scriptures and it continues to grow and you get to the, the end of scriptures and it's this like massive redwood, right? That's just, it's indestructible because it's continuing to grow throughout the pages of scripture. So we see it in Abraham. Well, now we get to see it in what I call the law and sacrifices. Here we see God telling his people how to live with him, how to live in relationship to him because he wants to be their God and he wants to dwell with them. You see, we see law and we think no relationship, right? We think unloving God. We think harsh, cruel. It's not the point of the law at all. The law was given because God loved his people and he said, I want to live in relationship with you. I want you to know me. 
So follow me. We're going to go to Leviticus. That book that if you have read through your Bible, you probably stop there. Because, you know, it gets a little heavy. And you're like, really? Something else has to die? Some, why do they care what color their clothes are? You get distracted. Well, frankly, I love Leviticus because it reveals so much of God wanting to dwell with his people. If, you have, if you're in the word of God, look at Leviticus 26, 12. We're getting close to the end of the book. Look at what God says. Actually, go back to verse 11. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you, which is interesting because God should abhor you. He should hate you. You track, you are everything he is not. There is no reason he should love you, but he has chosen to love you. That's the goodness of the gospel. I'm not worthy of love, but I'm made in his image and therefore he loves me. So he says, I, I, I don't abhor you. I've placed my love upon you. I want to dwell with you. Look what he says in verse 12. I and I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. The book of the law, Leviticus, the book that we get bored in. He says, I want to be your God and I want to dwell with you and I want you to be my people. That's the message of this book. The message of the law, God declaring, I want to be among you. This is what he desired from, his, from the beginning of creation, right? I want to dwell with you. I want to be among you. And sin breaks that relationship. And I want to get back to it. I want you to be my people. And I want you to dwell with me. And so it's what he zealously pursues. This is, this is the mission of God. You know, did you ever see a man on a mission? Maybe, maybe you're this way. You're one of those people that you get your blinders on and, and everybody knows that You've got to be undistracted or distracted before you can have a conversation. You know, I had a friend who you'd be talking to him and he would actually be going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. But I knew he wasn't hearing a word I was saying because he was reading or he was studying or focusing and I'd be like, hey, time out. Listen to me. If you read the story of the scriptures, you see that's God. He is on a mission. His goal is to reconcile humanity. It's in every page of scripture. He wants to redeem mankind that they might worship him. This isn't a side plan of God. It's the plan of God. It's what everything is going towards. I will be your God and you will be my people and I'm going to make it possible. Such good news. So we said the law and the sacrifices. Maybe you've wondered, why are there so many sacrifices in the Bible? Maybe you're just, you're, you're one of those animal lovers and you're just like, really another one? Like, oh, I can't do this. Like another story of another, I mean, has God just got it out for bulls, doves, sheep, goats? I mean, like, what is the plan? What, what's the purpose of this? Well, the purpose is real clear. Sin had to be punished, Genesis 3. There has to be death because of sin. And sacrifices were a temporary but necessary punishment to make atonement for sins so that God could dwell with his people and that his people could know him. Sin separates you and I from God. And since God wants to dwell with us and us with him, it demands a penalty for sin. This is where we struggle a little bit in our society. We struggle with penalty, don't we? We like to talk about the consummate love of God. Just this, like I've said before, we like to think of God as the heavenly teddy bear who when we're having a bad day, he just gives us a squeeze. And we squeeze him back. And it's like, oh, I just feel better now. God loves me. Just step back for a moment though and say, does not the infinite love of God demand wrath? 
Follow me for a moment. If you are in here and you have somebody that you love deeply, and that person, let's say, let's say a loved one, a family member, a mother, is abused, raped, mistreated. Your, your deep love, would it not cause you to have a little bit of hatred? Like, the deeper the love goes, the more you're going to want justice. You're going to say, I, even if I forgive that person, justice needs to happen. So we have a God who's infinitely loving. He loves us. He loves his own. Doesn't infinite love demand hatred towards all that is rebellious to him? And so he hates evil. He hates sin. And in the goodness of God, he doesn't take out his wrath on humanity. He, ta- he, he makes a plan to take it out on sacrifices, ultimately pointing to what sacrifice? Jesus, right? So we need to be okay with the wrath of God because if he is a loving God, then he is a just God. He must be. And here we see that we have sacrifices throughout the pages of scripture. Why? Because sin separates us from God and he wants to reconcile us to God, to himself. And therefore something must be punished for sin. We just, isn't this built in the framework of our humanity? I mean, isn't that like little children, they have that justice button, right? Typically not for themselves, but for everybody else. Isn't that how we operate as a society? Justice is, why is it built in? Because we have a God who is just. And we know that there's punishment for sin. I was talking with Doug about his friend who passed away and and maybe you've been at these events where it's a, a funeral, but we don't call them funerals anymore. We call them celebrations of life. Why? Because we can't handle death. We don't know what to do with death because the death confronts us with the reality that there might be consequence for sin. And so we're just like, uh-uh, I'm not touching it. We're going to ignore death. We're going to ignore hardship. We're going to ignore suffering because I can't, I don't have a framework for it. I don't know how to process it. And scripture has no problem processing it. There's one who died in your place and took your punishment or you will die for your own sin. And so we run to the one who died in our place. So sacrifice actually is one of those key points in scripture that shows us God wants to dwell with you. He wants to be your God. He wants you to follow him and sacrifices all over the scriptures point us in that direction. So God tells his people, hey, when you sin, an animal can die in your place because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. God wants there to be remission of sin. He wants to pay that price. So there's sacrifices, which takes us right to the temple. So we've had lawn sacrifices, the temple and the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the temporary temple before Israel built a permanent one underneath the reign of Solomon. So we have the tabernacle all through the Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. You get to Solomon and he has built a temple for God to dwell in. This is where sacrifices took place so that God could dwell with his people. Go back to Exodus 25. Exodus 25, I want you to see the connection throughout scripture that God dwells with people. This is key for us to understand where we are today in redemptive history. Look at what he says in Exodus 25, eight. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is God talking. I want to dwell with them. This is what I started off creation with in Genesis 3. Sins messed it all up. But I want to dwell with them. And if you ever want to study more of the um, historical context of the Exodus, I've got some great resources. But the, the temple, the tabernacle was in the middle of the people. 
and they would camp all around it. You're talking millions of people around this central location. What was unique? The presence of God was there. It was God will be in our midst. Everything revolves around the presence of God being with us. And we love the presence of God being with us. If you jump over three chapters or four chapters, Exodus 29, verse 45, a very similar statement. And I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And if we just changed a few little words in there, we could, we could read it like this. And they will know that I am the Lord their God who delivered them by the death of my son that I would dwell among them that they would be my people and I would be their God. See the story that God is weaving together? This story of the exodus with Israel, it's all pointing us to the cross. It's all pointing us to God dwelling with his people. It's not a random isolated event. It's getting humanity ready for what's ultimately coming. It's like a slow building book where you're waiting for the climactic chapter. That's the story of God being revealed in the pages of scripture. The climax is coming. It's coming. And if we had time, we could look at not just the temple, but the Holy of Holies, the presence of God in its most succinct form, dwelling with his people, a place that was so held in awe that one person went in one time a year. And and you just know the story, I imagine, where they tied the rope to the ankle. Like the presence of God wasn't something to be played with. It wasn't like this lighthearted, jovial thing. It was, if he falls dead in there, we're not going to get his body. We're going to drag him out because God is that awesome. His presence is that glorious. And because of sin, it was limited to that cube called the Holy of Holies. And we'll see in a little bit what Jesus did with that. So we have the the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies. And now we're going to skip 700 more years. We're going to get to the prophets. We're going to go to the prophets. By the time you get to the prophets, the nation of Israel is a wreck. We're talking like, like worse than you and I could even imagine. We're talking the dregs of society, like running from God with every fiber of their being. And we have a promise in Ezekiel. Ezekiel verse 37. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. All right, if you're wondering where it's at. Ezekiel 37, verse 26 and 27. Now, remember, they're running from God. This is a prophecy of total destruction. You will be annihilated. I will make a covenant of peace with you. What? What's going on here? Like, we're running from you? God, what are you doing? I'm going to make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant. That sounds a little bit like Genesis 12 and 17, doesn't it? I'm going to make a covenant with you and I'm going to set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst. My dwelling place will be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is the desire of God. When his people are running from him, it's the desire of God. When his people are drawing near to him, it's the desire of God. And so we see it on all pages of scripture. It's like God actually wants to redeem rebellious humanity. 
You ever felt that way? I mean, have you ever just gotten to the point where you're like, God, why do you love me? Like, I just, I just do my own thing all the time. Like, I'm like, forget about you. I'm going my own way. And, and then something happens and you're like, God, you're drawing me back. Why, God? Why? Because this is his heart. I want to dwell with you. I want to make you mine. And I'm going to keep loving you. I'm going to keep loving you. And so here we have the promise of the eternal future covenant of when God dwells with his people for all eternity. The story of God dwelling with his people is the unifying story of the entire Old Testament. God's going to dwell with his people regardless of them. It's not about them. It's about him. It's about him doing his work. So in Genesis 3, he didn't say, hey, forget it. You guys are losers. I'm killing you all and starting over. No, in Genesis 3, he says, you ran from me, but I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to make it possible. And I'm going to reveal that plan for the next thousands of years to show you how I'm going to dwell with you. So now skip over to the New Testament, okay? Here we're going to see a few more ways that God dwells with his people. John 14, verse 16, we have our Savior during his life talking to his disciples saying, hey, there's going to come a time I'm going to die. I'm going to have to go to the cross for you. I'm going to go back to heaven and be with my Father. But I want you to know something in verse 16. I'm going to ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. To what? Be with you forever. See that, how it connects back to, I want to dwell with you. I'm going to be with you. I want to be intimately connected to your life and the details of your life. I'm going to walk with you. I am your God. You will be my people. I'll be with you. This is Jesus talking, which shouldn't surprise us because uh, we could go through a detailed account this morning of inspiration and the spirit used under the divine, with divine authorship, using godly men to write scripture And you know who they testified about according to Luke 24? Jesus. Like Luke 24, Jesus uses scripture to tell all things concerning himself. So this book is about a savior whose name is Jesus. And Jesus in his earthly ministry says, hey, I'm, everything written in here, I'm I'm saying the same thing. I'm gonna be with you. I'm with you. The spirit's gonna come. I'll be with you. Isn't that comforting to us today? You're not alone. You don't have to wonder. If you're a child of God, you're not the one, God, are you with me? You might feel lonely at times. You might wonder, God, are you there? But you can go and say, God, I know you're there. I know you're with me because I'm yours. And Jesus said, there will be a helper who comes. His name is the Holy Spirit. He will be with you forever. Look at Ephesians 2.22. Here we see that he is with the church. So the Old Testament was a lot about Israel. And we could talk about Israel and its relationship to the church till the cows come home. But Ephesians chapter two, we're talking about the church, this thing that we're doing today, 2,000 years after the coming of the Messiah. And he says in Ephesians 2, 22, in him, in Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Personal preference, this is not the sanctuary. This is just a room we worship in. Because here, the holy, the holy place, the sanctuary, is the church, the people of God. He doesn't dwell in a temple made by hands. He dwells in the people of God. 
And so the church is being built up into what? The temple in which God's going to dwell. He dwells in his bride, the church. And so he is building up a church to dwell with. He wants to dwell with his people by the power of his spirit. And he does it in this thing called the church, not the room, the people of God being built up together. And individually, he does it in the life of every Christian, Colossians chapter one. So go over there, Colossians one, verse 27. He does it in the, by the spirit through the church and in the life of the Christian, Colossians 1, 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. He is in you, he is with you. He died in your place that he might be with you. I love that last line, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? He is not distant from us. He is with us and in us. His plan from the beginning of time. And now I want you to jump to the end of your Bible, Revelation 21. This morning you might be thinking, wow, Pastor Justin, you are going all over. I know, I know. It's the proverbial fire hydrant that I think maybe some drips will be caught, okay? So I don't want you to think, oh my goodness, you're going too fast. I'm just trying to skip as a rock does on the surface of a water, right? And say, look at this, look at this, look at God's plan. He, remember Genesis 3? Remember what he started with? Look at how he finishes. Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That's the heart of God. He started off with a plan to dwell with his humanity in this place called Eden. Sin messed everything up. And all of scripture is going to Revelation 21.3. He will dwell with his people. I will be their God. I'm going to make it possible through the blood of the lamb who was slain to be with my people once again. And I will be their God. So heaven and all all eternity is when God finally and ultimately restores and rescues his fallen people. Do you see the ark of scripture? Do you see this isn't a random God dwelling with his people? This is like, Wow, this isn't a bunch of random collections of stories. This is a a God with infinite wisdom, with an infinitely wise plan that no human being could have ever crafted to dwell with humanity. We run from him and he runs to us so that we might be able to dwell with him. And what's amazing is that this plan is not one like so many of the religions of the world put out there. That, hey, if you just become a better version of yourself, if you just try harder to get to God, you'll get there. It is a, while you're running from me, I'm gonna redeem you. I'm gonna make a plan in eternity past to save sinners such as we all are. What a glorious message. So in light of all of that, of the, the, the grand story of God, Let's go to Matthew 1. Because here we see the statement that we read this morning at the beginning of the service. Matthew 1, rejoicing or the coming of Emmanuel. The coming of Emmanuel. 
year we would say is the story of Christmas. The story of God becoming man. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. And we'll get there in just a minute. Before we read Matthew 1:18, I need to tell you about where verse 23 comes from. Remember we talked about the prophets? We talked about this, these, um, this time in Israel's history of their evil wickedness. In Isaiah 7, 14 is a verse that you've all heard before, most likely. It's a verse that talks about God giving a sign, a virgin conceiving and having a child. But let's just talk briefly about what's happening there. In Isaiah 7, the prophet goes to a wicked king named Ahaz. Ahaz is a horrible person in every way. He is the kind of person who goes to a foreign country, sees their idolatrous ways, comes back and tells the high priest, build that idolatrous altar in the temple. So now the temple of God has in it an an altar to pagan deities. And then Ahaz sacrifices his own children on that altar to pagan deities in God's temple. Like this guy is messed up, okay? This is not a good period of Israel's history. Isaiah, in an act of God's grace, goes to Ahaz, and Ahaz is about to embark in a conflict with another army. And he said, Ahaz, even though you're running from God, God, the God of heaven is gonna give you a sign. Ask for a sign from God. And Ahaz plays a moment of piety. Oh, Oh, I would never assume on God to ask him for a sign. I mean, it's just this like snubbing your nose at God. Like, whatever. I'm not going to ask for, I'm not going to even go to the God of heaven. And he plays the, I'm too good for that. Or I'm too righteous. We don't need that. And then there's a sign that is actually a sign of judgment. And it's pronounced to Ahaz immediately in Isaiah 7, 14. Listen to it. You know what, Isaiah, Ahaz, you think you don't need this God, but let me tell you what this God's going to do. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You don't want a sign? He's going to give you one anyway. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You don't think you need this God, but this God is going to come to humanity anyway. A virgin, talk about next week, they don't have babies is going to have a baby. He's going to, they're going to have a, his name, that name, the name of that baby is Emmanuel, which to you and me is a, again, a hallmark card. But Emmanuel in Hebrew is simply with us is God. So he says, Ahaz, you don't think you need that God, but there's a baby who's going to come and his name is with us is God. You have rejected that God, but he's going to come to humanity. He is going to make himself known to humanity. And 700 years later, the promise comes true. Jesus is given this name. Let's look at Matthew 1. Now I want you to remember this morning where we've been. Because we could have just jumped into Matthew 1 and talked about these seven verses this morning. But I don't think it would have hit us the same. I don't think we would have understood the context of God with us in all of scripture. So let's look at this together. The angel comes to Joseph In verse 18. And Joseph being a just man, or verse 19, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
And the name Jesus literally means savior or to save. So he is, there's a name for Jesus. He'll save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what was, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. What prophet? Isaiah 7:14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us or with us is God. Joseph woke from his sleep and did exactly as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Why would the angel give this name? Why, why would of all the names Jesus could have taken from God, why this one? Because maybe it was just God's plan from Genesis 3 to dwell with his people. From the very beginning of creation, God had a plan. And his name was Emmanuel, God with us. And so this humankind who runs from God and runs from the presence of God, God says, I'm going I'm to do the work. I'm going I'm to meet you where you're at, if you will. I'm going to send a savior. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. So the God you try to run from is the God who is now with you. And his name is Emmanuel. What sin made impossible, humanity dwelling with God, Jesus made possible. Sin separates us from the presence of God and Jesus makes it possible for us to be in the presence of God. Sin rips us from God and Jesus bursts on the scene and says, I can reconcile you to God. He restores God with us. It's why he came. He came that we might be reconciled to God. The story of Christmas is not one of a baby in a manger. It's the one of a baby who came to die so that we might know God with us. That we could be reconciled to the God who made us. So God's desire has always been to dwell with his people. It was his creative plan to dwell with us that we might know him and worship him forever as the Westminster Catechism says. And sin so destroyed that relationship that we don't know him, we don't enjoy him, we don't delight in him. God has to do a work. He has to come to us and meet us where we are. And in the life of Jesus, that was called Emmanuel. God with us. And this plan was put in place with immediacy. I love in Genesis 3, God's not like, oh man, what do I do next? Man, I wasn't planning on that one. Man, Adam, you really messed it up. It's like instantaneous because it was the plan of God to, to redeem mankind. So it's like, you're going you're gonna to run for me? I'm going to come after you. I will be your God. You will be my people. And I love that Emmanuel communicates that God is not a distant deity. You know, there's a lot of people today that think God is just out there, but doesn't really care about you. Emmanuel communicates that he is with his people. He is not distant from your cares. He's not aloof to your concerns and your trials. He is the very God who is with us. And so as we, followers of Jesus, we celebrate this thing called Christmas. If there's anything that happens in our souls, it should be wonder. It should be amazement at God. To say, this holiday season is about, about one thing and one thing alone. It's a God who reconciled humanity to himself. 
It's a God who took us from darkness to light. It's a God who said, you know what? That world that shunned me, I'm going to become like one of them and be with them. That I might redeem them. So Christmas is ultimately about worship. Ascribing worship to God. And we live in a society that doesn't even know that, right? We just like Christmas because of music and food and family and time off work. But we read the pages of scripture and we realize this is about the eternal plan of God to take fallen, broken sinners and dwell with them for all eternity. You're here this morning and and, and you don't know Jesus. Can I just ask you this morning, would you stop running from that God who longs to dwell with you? When I say longs to dwell with you, I don't mean that God needs you. I mean that God loves you. He needs nothing. This isn't a God who needs you and so he did all that he could because without you, he's gonna just cry himself to sleep at night. This is a God who infinitely loves you because of who he is, his goodness, his greatness. And so he reaches out to love humanity in a magnificent way called Emmanuel. And would you stop running from him this morning? And would you just say, Lord, what what have you done to reconcile me to yourself? You sent a baby, his name is Jesus, Emmanuel, because I just run my, own, run my own way away from you. And I can turn to you and know God with us. And if you know him this morning, oh, that we would live in awe of him. That it would just be like, wow, Lord, the plan of God to be with his people is everywhere. And it culminates in the coming of the Messiah. It's like the, the apex of Everest. You're climbing the mountain to get to that peak while you're going through scripture and you're climbing the mountain to see, wow, God is with us. This God who should hate us is the God who loves us. And not only does he love us, he is with us in the person of Jesus. And so we can rejoice in Emmanuel. This isn't some casual, flippant thing. This is magnificent. This is eternally significant. Emmanuel came that he might not only be with us, but that he might redeem us and live in our place and die in our place that we might be reconciled to God. Isn't that good news? Let's pray together and thank him for Emmanuel. Father, this morning... was a lot from your word bouncing here and there to show the grand story of God. Father, it is, this world is your story. You're doing your work. And we, we want to gaze into that this morning. And we want to see God with us. And Father, this, this week even, as we have Christmas all around us, might we take that as an opportunity to worship and adore you for truly God is with us in the Savior who was born in a manger, who we call Jesus. And we thank you for that in Christ's name, amen.